Absolutely. So we are going to nerd out about how design thinking is the best, best methodology for hiring talent for organizations because it focuses on the human, right? The candidate, but it also really ensures that we're meeting the business needs. Absolutely. So design thinking is a methodology that you use when you're trying to solve a challenge, a problem, trying to find a solution, and you want to focus on the audience. So who are you actually solving that problem for? So you're really trying to gather insight about them, then be able to create ideas that would actually help solve that problem. Be able to, we talked, you talked about prototyping, being able to find that quick, easy, um, way to show how that solution might work, um, be able to get feedback on that, be able to understand if it's going to work or not. If it's not going to work, fail fast, right? So that you're not failing in front of your audience and then be able to take the solution that works, implement it, but then do the iteration piece, which is all about continuing to evolve that solution you got to ask for feedback. You got to, you know, learn from your audience and you have to do it yourself. So if you haven't applied to your own jobs, if you haven't gone through your own interview process, if you haven't taken the time to truly see the candidate side to get that empathy going, you're never going to have good candidate experience. Welcome to the Improvement Nerds Podcast, where we host conversations about the things that nerd us out with one goal in mind, sharing best practices and sharing techniques and tools that allow us to make lasting change. In each episode, we'll feature a different idea and hopefully through that episode, give you a set of new tools, new skills, and new thinking that'll allow you to change how you do your work, how you lead others, and how you show up in your life. We're so excited that you've chosen to nerd out with us. We hope that these episodes are exactly the things that you need to hear in order to get started in making the improvements that you want to see happen in the world. If these episodes speak to you, please subscribe to our podcast, like what we're doing, and leave a comment. They have a they have a difficult they have difficulty even doing that change management to be able to move forward. And unfortunately, a lot of times, I think that happens a lot in human resources. Um, It's hard to change because they want it to be perfect. Um, If you even look at, like if you talk to people who are in a business and they ask about their HR person, they literally assume that HR person's perfect. They do everything right. They know all the rules, all the policies. So there's like this high expectation of HR professionals to do it right and get it right the first time. And so a lot of times that will put fear into wanting to iterate, wanting to experiment and try things. And and that's the problem. We don't bring our, our, our authentic selves to work. We can't, right? We, you have this um, facade that you put on. And I did it all the time when I was in corporate HR. There was a facade. I wasn't allowed to go to the happy hours with my, you know, with my hiring managers. I wasn't allowed to kind of break free and have fun and show my, show my horrible humor that I have. You know, I had to kind of be prim and proper. And, you know, I had to sit correctly. I mean, at one point, 
I sat at the front desk and, you know, my manager would be like, Jody, stop slutching. You have, you know, <laughs> I mean, like literally it's like, I couldn't even have a bad day. You couldn't, you couldn't have a bad day in front of them. But if you would go into the closed door conversations with the HR people together, you got to see the true HR people. You got to see that we made mistakes, that we didn't know what to do all the time. Um, and that, you know, but that wasn't allowed to be seen in front of your customer. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one, but yeah, we are fun and we are inquisitive and we want to learn stuff, but it's just, how can we do it and feel comfortable doing it in front of our stakeholders? Cause we are in front of our stakeholders at all times. Margaret Mead said it best when she shared that one should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, that it was the only thing that ever had. I couldn't agree more. Let's get busy, Improvement Nerds. We've got a lot of work to do. All right, Improvement Nerds, before we jump into this episode, I have a huge favor to ask of you. Over the last year, I've had a lot of fun and I've learned a lot in creating these podcasts. And I'm committed to keeping them going. But to be honest, I'm one person, and I'm trying to grow this podcast and my small business at the same time. And in order to keep my energy high and to stay excited about these conversations and this journey ahead of me, I need your support. And so do several other small business owners. I don't know if you know this, but the best way you can show a small business support or the podcast support is to first subscribe to that organization's podcast or to their newsletter. Going beyond subscribing, the next thing you can do is to like their content. If you find the content specifically engaging, leave a comment and contribute to the dialogue. If you want to go one step further than that, share the content across your social media platforms and help us reach a larger audience. Look for other activities that that organization is participating in. I don't know if you're aware of this, but outside of the Improvement Nerds podcast, I have a website called thegreen.group.com. On that website, I feature a variety of improvement tools and training that help individuals equip themselves with the skills, the tools, and the thinking they need in order to make and lead change. To support small business, visit these people's websites, check out their resources, and if you see value in the services that they provide, enroll those services. Or if you know of an organization that would benefit from that small business's services, forward that information on to that individual to help them out. Running a small business is a complete joy. It gives the individual creative freedom to produce content that is meaningful to them and to meet others that are passionate about the same things they are. But for all that passion and all that excitement, don't underestimate how hard the work is to create success as a small business owner. Behind the scenes of a small business, it's often one individual who's pouring themselves into that business to make it happen. And just like any other person who walks this earth, that individual has their limits. Some days there's good days where the energy is flowing and creating content and growing your business just works. And then there's other days where it's hard to find the motivation to put in the effort. You guys as improvement nerds pour a lot more energy into my business than you know. And I cannot thank you enough for that. Now let's get to the episode.
Hey, Improvement Nerds, this is Tom. I'm back with another episode of the Improvement Nerds podcast. Today, I'll be welcoming my guest, Jody Brandstetter. Jody is the author of the best-selling book on Amazon, and we'll talk about the categories that this book has been featured in. And that book title is Hire by Design. So talks about two passions of mine, which is uh, ensuring organizations have a vibrant workforce and the talent they need to execute their mission and design thinking. So two things that I love nerding out about. So this episode was bound to happen. So I'm I'm so excited to have Jody join me today. Welcome to the show, Jody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh man. And we're zooming together and you're calling in from what part? I know you're uh from Ohio. So what part of Ohio? Yeah, so I live in Loveland, Ohio, which is a suburb of the great Cincinnati, Ohio, known for our wonderful Bearcats. Go UC. Oh, okay. Well, you might have. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not, I wish I was more fluent in sports. Um, I went to Indiana State, which had uh, a successful basketball program in like 2000. And that was really the only major milestone outside of Larry Bird. So, like, I can never you know, say go trees because it just didn't intimidate anybody. So I just kind of gave up on sports altogether after college days. I actually graduated from University of Evansville and we really had no game, I guess. But last year we had game for one game, which was when we defeated UK. And that was, that, that was pretty big for us, um, purple aces. So, um, but my husband went to UC, so we're, we're pretty big, um, fans of UC's, uh, football and basketball. And my daughter loves their volleyball team. So we're, we're we are all about UC Bearcats. Oh man. Well, it's great to have a, a team like that in your backyard and to get to cheer for them. Um, I didn't know you. We, so we're connected through the Missouri Valley Conference then because both of yes. us, our alma maters competed against each other in the NBC. So, mm-hmm. OK, well, then this conversation's over because we're once we compete as college students, we just compete for the rest of life. So, <laughs> awesome. So I'm going to set the stage. I already kind of talked a little bit about the book and the two core topics of um, acquiring talent and design thinking. So I imagine those are two among many things that we're going to nerd out about in this episode, but I want to kind of let you introduce, you know, that, that topic and just kind of give us the elevator speech of how the, how this came about and and what it is. And then of course, we'll circle back to that and we'll do a deep dive on it. So I want to give you the chance to kind of set the stage about what we're going to nerd out about. Absolutely. So we are going to nerd out about how design thinking is the best best methodology for hiring talent for organizations because it focuses on the human, right, the candidate, but it also really ensures that we're meeting the business needs. So it's going to be a huge nerd out about just hiring, design thinking, empathy, experience, all that fun stuff. Oh man, I I can't wait. This is an important topic um, in, in our current climate. And I, I know in your book, you talk a little bit about the climate. So I'm sure that's going to be something that comes up as we do our deep dive. So I'm going to have to put a feather in the cap 
And we can't just jump in and start nerding out on topics because then I'll forget to go through your introduction and get your background. So I'm going to sit on my hands and we're going to let you talk a little bit about your journey and how you came about um, authoring the book, how you came about being passionate about this topic and, you know, where you see things going next. Absolutely. So like I said, I'm actually a, a Hoosier that lives in the Buckeye State so I transitioned over to um, Ohio right after I graduated from college, the good old University of Evansville. And I had a passion for human resources right away when I was in college and immediately was drawn to recruiting and hiring. Um, of course, most people like that part because it's the nice part of HR, right? We get to make offers. We get to have people start. Um, it's not employee relations. It's not boring like compensation. Um, so um, really, you know, kind of was very focused on, on hiring, recruiting, and HR when I graduated. And so I, I started my career <clears throat> placing temps, like most new grads wanting to get an HR start as, and um, kind of worked my way up from placing temps to working at um, Sally May, which is the student loan company. And I was hiring collectors, which is not super fancy. Um, most people don't like it, but it actually is a fun, fast-paced job because uh, we were hiring about 15 to 20 people every two weeks. <clears throat> so it was definitely a, a learning um, process. From there, I decided I wanted to get more experience in other parts of hiring. So I transitioned into hiring inside sales for a local organization here in Cincinnati and then went back to staffing and so I could gain some knowledge of IT recruiting. Mm. Was there for about three or four years and really got a, a really nice in-depth knowledge of recruiting itself as well as IT and other parts of the business I've never recruited for before and ended up being a boomerang and went back to Sally May. <laughs> Not, um, you know, that grass always greener doesn't always work all the time. I actually really enjoyed my time at Sally May the first time and they had a role that was really cool. I was really excited about, I was going to get to um, help manage a relationship of the business and the RPO that they were using to hire. And um, I ended up managing the RPO out and then developing a team, an internal team to do all the hiring for a couple of their subsidiaries. Um, and then from there, I decided that I wanted to go out on my own. I wanted to take all this knowledge I, came, I, I received through my career and really be able to provide it to small to mid-sized companies here in Cincinnati. And that's when I decided to find my consulting um, company, which is Lead Effective Talent Strategies, LETS for short. Um, our focus is helping companies with <clears throat> developing a hiring blueprint with design thinking. And then I also have a second pillar of my organization, which is talent acquisition evolution. And that's how I'm able to stay on top of trends, continue to learn, because it's all about connecting with other TA folks to be able to learn um, connect and work together. And so I've been doing that since 2018. And in 2020, I decided to write a book pre-COVID pandemic. 
and um, stuck with it during the pandemic <laughs> and, and, and decided to create a book about design thinking and talent acquisition because I really felt like this was an avenue that a lot of companies weren't utilizing was a methodology to create a strong hiring process. And design thinking is the best, in my opinion, methodology uh, to do that. So wrote a book about it um, and uh, published it in September. And like you said, it became a bestseller. And uh, and here we are today. I love the journey and the energy talking about all the experiences you've had from undergraduate. Did you study HR or did you study maybe psychology or social work? Uh, what was your undergrad in? My undergrad was in management. That was the closest degree to HR. So that was where I could actually take some HR classes. I started off in finance and realized that was not my cup of tea. Um, and I realized that by actually having an, I know, shocking, um, <laughs> realized that because I got an internship in HR. Um, I was told right when I graduated high school that you had to get an internship as quickly as possible. And so I got the first internship I could, which was at a local hospital. And um, it was in their HR department, which I thought, great, I can look at job descriptions and I can figure out what finance uh, position I wanted. Got there and was like, ah, I don't like finance. I like this. Um, so um, decided to flip my major from finance to management. Yeah, I um, am glad that, you know, you you went in and were open to experiencing a career before, you know, completely plugging in with a degree that's hard to change after you graduate. So internships, yeah, it's great resume builder, but it's also an experiment in some ways to make a decision about, does this work I can be passionate about? So that's why I encourage people to intern is to kind of test the waters um, mm -hmm. and, you know, get that exposure, that experience, and talk to people who are doing the work and, and get that input to, to, to make a more informed decision as to whether or not this is what I want to do. Now, there is a caveat there, because if you intern somewhere and they leave a bad taste in your mouth, and it potentially could have been work you really would have loved, you know, there, that's risk there too. Um, but nonetheless, you should, in any career transition or any um, effect when you're trying to make a decision, try to experiment with it. And that, you know, we'll, that's, of course, an element of design thinking is ideating mm -hmm. and prototyping is you cut your teeth on it, uh, fail fast, fail cheap, and, you know, learn as much as you can in every experience that you that you're given. Yeah, absolutely. And I do encourage people to do internships too, especially outside of what you think you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, you might learn about a culture of an organization that you love or hate, right? I mean, I did so many interviews at fin financial advisor firms and I realized I was like, oh my gosh, no, I do not want to be a salesperson trying to sell my friends and family my capabilities as a financial advisor. That was not for me. Um, and that was really kind of the route that a lot of my peers in finance were going and realized, yeah, this isn't for me. And, and HR seemed to be um, where I really enjoyed. I was able to be analytical, but then also be able to work with people. And I think that's what, you know, kind of really excited me through that internship. And I did have an amazing internship coordinator. Her name's Suzanne. So I'm going to give a shout out to her because I'll make sure she gets this. Um, 
because she was a great um, mentor for me throughout my time there. And I ended up entering with them every semester from my sophomore year to my senior year. Oh, man, that's awesome. So we've got school internship and then your, your career track, a lot of different experiences and industries in that. And thanks for sharing those things. I want to get to your uh, design thinking certification and where you were first exposed to design thinking, what your initial impressions of it were, because some people, when they are uh, uh, presented with this methodology, they're like, well, that's all fluff and kittens and puppies. Um, So I want to know what your initial impression was. And then, you know, you're enrolling, you're deciding to enroll in and get certification on it. So talk to me a little bit about how design came into the picture for you. Sure. So when I started my consulting business, one of the things they they tell you when you become an entrepreneur is you have to have a niche. You have to have something that makes you different from your competitors. And what I had decided my niche was going to be was I was going to work with a methodology and that was going to help me build really strong processes for my clients. And there's, you know, all kinds of methodologies out there that you can use. Um, I've worked in IT, so I knew about, you know, project management certification and lean and six and nine. There's all these, you know, mm-hmm. options. And I just started doing some research. I Googled like everyone else does and started looking at methodologies. Um, and I found design thinking. And first, it just sounds really interesting to me. Um, it, it really, you know, had that focus on the person that, um, you know, that was my whole career. I focus on people. <laughs> so that just seemed like that made sense. And then I, I kind of just looked at it for a minute and kind of pushed it to the side. I was busy, you know, with um, working. I had clients, thankfully. And then I went to a uh, conference. I was actually speaking at a conference. It was HR Southwest down in Fort Worth. And there was a design thinking um, session. And I'm like, hmm, here it is again. Maybe I should go. And so I went to this session and she did an amazing job. And it was all about brainstorming, coming up with new ideas. She had you partner with somebody and kind of bounce your ideas off of each other. And I left that going, okay, I have to take this more seriously. This looks like the methodology that I should be focused on. So then I started doing my due diligence on how can I find out more about this? What are different avenues I can go um, to learn about design thinking? You know, um, University of Cincinnati actually has a design thinking certification. So I reviewed that. I reviewed some of the online universities that have, like MIT, I think, had one um, that I was looking at. And, um, and I started looking at IDEO, you, and so there's so much that comes in play, right? When you're going to do some courses, you want to make sure it's going to be interesting that it's going to be something that you get done in the time that you want it to be done. Um, cost, especially when you own your own business is super important. Uh, you know, I can't spend $20,000 on a certification um, at this point in my career. And so I really kind of looked at all those different pieces and I kept going back to IDOU. I really liked that it was through a design firm that actively uses design thinking in their business. And I felt like if I'm going to learn a methodology, I need to learn from people who use it today in their work. Nothing bad about going to like a college to learn it, but I just really felt like I would grasp the information more. I would have more stories, more case studies to learn from. 
And it was online. I took, they had like an intro to design thinking course that was like $99. I'm like, let's do that. See what I think. Love the format. Love that you got feedback from your peers, that you were able to provide them feedback. Um, so it just really fit what I was looking for. And so then I just dove in and started taking the classes. Um, went with the basic certification, and then I went ahead and went with the advanced certification as well. Because you got to be able to deem yourself a nerd, right? You got to yeah, take it the extra mile. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. I have two HR certifications. I am a nerd, you know, <laughs> like I love this stuff. Like I love learning. I love being a part of like conversations about interesting um topics so yeah so I felt like yeah if I'm going to do this I'm going I'm going big or going home right so I'm yeah. big <laughs> yeah I had a, a buddy in college who it was typically not for good but sometimes in troublemaking he would always say uh if it's worth doing it's worth doing right and so mm-hmm. you know like um mischief like he he would do it in regards to mischief but I I adopted that for my career and, you know, even some of my uh, credentials and things that I pursued was, you know, I I would be smart about it. Um, Most of that was my wife balancing me out because I'm kind of like, oh yeah, like, you know, I'm just going to go big. And she's like, well, maybe you should, you know, test the waters a little bit. So, you know, going through the certifications to become a belt was something that you know, I wanted to accelerate. And she's like, no, like, enjoy this journey, go through the introduction and get feedback and make sure this is something that you want to invest more time and energy on, and then scale up from there. And it, that sounds like that was your runway too, is you were excited and probably could have jumped right to the very tippy top, but it's probably someone who was pulling you back a little bit, like, you know, uh, I get your excitement and keep your excitement, but let's, you know, maybe go about it at an angle to where you're not going to burn out. Yeah. My husband does that for me a lot. Cause I have a lot of big ideas that I like to just go for. And he usually has to be like, can we just talk for a minute? You know, like I found this great way of learning about podcasts. It costs a lot of money. I was about to dive in and just jump for it. And he's like, have you tried to do it yourself yet? And I'm like, <laughs> maybe I should do that first before I, you know, invest this money. So yeah, he's my bounce. He's my, he's my board. I bounce ideas off of, or at least gives me some clarity or time to kind of think about stuff before I do. I could sense that in our planning call and even in this conversation that you and I are kind of kindred in that mm-hmm. we're ready to run before we even know how to walk in some ways yes yes absolutely so, kudos to your husband and to my wife and anyone <laughs> who plays that role for some for people like us you keep yeah, us and, safe and, and also please be nice to them because it's a lot of energy I think that it takes <laughs> takes to be with probably at least with me it takes a lot of energy and a lot of patience so you know whenever you see those people you you just you just give them a a high five or a beer whatever they need just make them happy that's what I do yeah so thank you so much for kind of walking us through your journey and sharing with us a little of your personality I love the energy that you have for life in general I mean yeah, we're hitting on this topic and I could see it's just a lot, creates a lot of joy for you. But I feel like just in general, that's how you live your life is just try to 
enjoy it and have a lot of positive energy about it. So thank you for bringing that energy to this topic and to my episode. And uh, even beyond that, just being a role thank model you. to people but like, hey, like amp it up. Be It's okay to be excited about stuff and don't um, hide that that energy, but wear it on your sleeve and share it with others. So thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I get sad when people aren't excited I, or they don't show that passion or they don't show that energy. Like I'm, I'm all about trying to get people to that other level of energy or at least get them excited about something. <laughs> like, yeah, That's how I live. Like I need to be excited. <laughs> so I think we're going to be able to create some excitement for our listeners around the methodology of design thinking and the way that you have adopted that methodology to talent acquisition in that those that, that crossroad that intersection of those two things and some of the magic per se that's happening there. So let's go through and do a little bit of a deep dive on the topic of design thinking in the talent acquisition space. And I think you talked initially one of the things that got you super excited was that design thinking the methodology is focused on people and uh, based on empathy with a goal of creating uh, exceptional experiences. So I can totally see the fit. And I want to talk with you uh, about your book, about some of the case studies, about some of the research you're doing, about some of the trends and stuff that kind of highlight why design thinking works so well in the TA space. So you ready to jump in? Let's do it. Awesome. So um, I kind of want to just really quick, because it's in the book, you talk about what is design thinking. So you talk about the methodology. So I think we owe that to the audience, a quick snapshot of what it is, and uh, maybe educate them a little bit on it. Absolutely. So design thinking is a methodology that you use when you're trying to solve a challenge, a problem, trying to find a solution, and you want to focus on the audience. So who are you actually solving that problem for? So you're really trying to gather insight about them, then be able to create ideas that would actually help solve that problem. Be able to, we talked, you talked about prototyping, being able to find that quick, easy um, way to show how that solution might work. Um, be able to get feedback on that, be able to understand if it's going to work or not. If it's not going to work, fail fast, right? So that you're not failing in front of your audience. And then be able to take the solution that works, implement it, but then do the iteration piece, which is all about continuing to evolve that solution. You know, um, we are humans, we evolve. We change, our environment changes, just like with the pandemic. Like if any company was still doing all face-to-face final interviews in April, they probably didn't have a lot of candidates because that's not where we were as um you know, as a, as a group of people with the pandemic going on. So evolving it, changing it, tweaking it, constantly looking at it, saying, is this still working is like, I think probably one of the biggest pieces of design thinking um, that businesses should be kind of wrapping their heads around. I agree that that iteration is essential. And that's a part of a lot of the improvement methods to 
go through it's kind of enlightened trial and error in some ways is mm -hmm. change changes upon us and we don't have time to design the perfect solution to respond to this change but we know we need to start doing things a little bit different so it's the safest most reasonable first step we can take to experiment and learn and based on that learning take the next step and the next step and I think organizations that suspend change because they want to plan it out and get it so that it's so perfect, oftentimes never change because perfect really doesn't exist. No, they have a they have a difficult they have difficulty even doing that change management to be able to move forward. And unfortunately, a lot of times I think that happens a lot in human resources. Um, it's hard to change because they want it to be perfect. Um, if, you, if you even look at like if you talk to people who are in a business and they ask about their HR person, they literally assume that HR person's perfect. They do everything right. They know all the rules, all the policies. <laughs> so there's like this high expectation of HR professionals to do it right and get it right the first time. And so a lot of times that will put fear into wanting to iterate, wanting to experiment and try things. I'm glad you brought that up because empathy for the end user um, and understanding their motivators and their beliefs is really important part of the design thinking process. So you shared with us somewhat of a persona of an HR professional is there's the expectation of being perfect because one, that person's customers oftentimes require it. So uh, the employee themselves or a hiring manager or even the customer of a regulator because we know HR is regulated. So, you know, we have this persona, an HR professional who wants to do things perfectly. And um, that in some ways helps them be successful, but it also can make them be slow to change. So I think you saw, okay, we've got this catalytic event that's challenging HR to innovate. And a large majority of HR professionals, their persona types are to be perfect. So they're going to be slow to respond. They're going to be anxious. They might be fearful. Oh, design thinking is a way to help them um, change and actually bring their playful spirit to their work. Cause you know, it's in there. Like you know, oh, yeah. HR people, when they're not at work and they're at a conference mm -hmm. or they're at the barbecue they they cut we are loose. fun people we are so much fun to hang out with and and that's the problem we don't bring our our, our authentic selves to work we can't right we you have this um facade that you put on and i did it all the time when i was in corporate hr there was a facade i wasn't allowed to go to the happy hours with my you know with my hiring managers i wasn't allowed to kind of break free and have fun and show my show my horrible humor that i have you know i had to kind of be prim and proper and you know i had to sit correctly i mean at one point I sat at the front desk and, you know, my manager would be like, Jody, stop slutching. You have, you know, <laughs> I mean, like literally it's like, I couldn't even have a bad day. You couldn't, you couldn't have a bad day in front of them. But if you would go into the closed door conversations with the HR people together, you got to see the true HR people. You got to see that we made mistakes, that we didn't know what to do all the time. Um, and that, you know, but that wasn't allowed to be seen in front of your customer. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one, but yeah, we are fun and we are 
inquisitive and we want to learn stuff, but it's just how can we do it and feel comfortable doing it in front of our stakeholders? Because we are in front of our stakeholders at all times. Yeah, you're definitely got a life of onstage, offstage as an HR professional. And I work a lot in the healthcare. So you have a nursing and physicians, very risk adverse, obviously, because a mistake on their part oftentimes could lead to harm or poor quality of care. So they themselves um, have created uh, a, na- a very natural resistance to change because change equals risk and risk equals potential breakdown and failure and harm to a patient. So of course they dig their heels in. Now they're mm-hmm. not they're not like that as humans, but they are as professionals because the, the processes they perform and the customers they serve require them to. So HR and, and healthcare in some ways, a lot of people are like, oh, slow to change. Well, I get, please look at, their work through their eyes and they're resisting simply because not to be jerks or to be pains in the butts a lot of people perceive that but that's not true they're they're really resisting because they're they see it as advocating for their customers and trying to keep them safe and then when you bring design thinking into that space you can actually let that person let their hair down a little bit and practice empathy and, and to innovate and to be excited about stuff. And it's so cool to see teams of people who oftentimes get the, the perception of resistant or stick in the mud and you bring these tool sets into them and they're on fire. They're super energetic. Their passion is tangible. It's so much fun to see teams use design thinking because it really does make connections. And it's also a safe place to do it because you are prototyping. You're not putting it directly in front of your consumer, your audience, your employees, your candidates. So it does give a doctor or an HR professional or anyone who sees high risk and changing that stage to be able to change to see, well, what does that do? How does that impact what I'm doing. And then they can really start playing with that to really find something that's going to work. All right. I think we've, let's step off our soapbox. I think we've convinced (laughs) our listeners that design thinking is a powerful tool to bring about creative energy to teams that um, need to change um, either out of desperation. So abruptly a catalyst has happened and they've got to respond to it, but also there's change out of uh, aspiration or inspiration of we want to be the best or, you know, we're looking further down the road and this is a strategic move. So design thinking fits in either of those contexts, whatever is pressuring a person or an organization to change design thinking is your ally in that regard. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the cool stuff that you've seen happen through use of design thinking um, in in your clients or in your studies. Let's talk about some of that, the, the, the work that has unfolded in front of you. And I love some of your case studies because when you tell these stories, it's like, here's what they were thinking and here's where they potentially were going to go. And that's a giant, you know, puddle that they might've stepped off on or a puddle of water or a pile of dog dew. You know, oftentimes they've got their assumptions, they're playing it really safe and conservative and they think they're doing the right thing, but had they acted on that, they would have got themselves a big, big trouble. 
And then, so you kind of talk a little bit about that, but then you talk about the real, the outcome that was actually, uh, that actually occurred when they applied the design thinking principle. And it's like a 180 oftentimes from where they thought they needed to make the change to where they actually ended up making change. So let's talk about maybe one of those 180s that have happened with one of your client organizations or one of your case studies. So I did a case study and it's still in the process because I started it and COVID happened. Um, but it was a 180 for me personally. And I like telling personal quite like I have a lot of case studies that I, I found like through IDEO. They have amazing case studies, by the way, um, where you can see a lot of aha moments. And I do use a couple of those in my book. Um, but one that I had personally was when I started really wanting to understand the communication process for candidates. I have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. I know as a candidate, getting ghosted sucks. I know as a recruiter, getting ghosted sucks. Um, and I also know that there's times where an email is not acceptable, a text message might be, or you need to have a phone conversation. So I was I was really starting this, this study on, okay, I really want to understand what candidates want from communication. And I was going by it as in, you know, what step do they want what, you know, so I was really focused on, is an email okay, you know, um, the whole, um, you know, chat bot type feel, is that something they want, you know, so I was really going by that. And so I met with like, four candidates, um, and then COVID hit, um, so I met with four, <laughs> and um And I started asking questions around that. And then I, I really kept the conversation pretty open. And what I actually found out was it wasn't really the type of communication or how they communicated. At this point in the world, candidates just want to know their status. They just want to know, are you still wanting me to continue this process or not? And that's where I think my aha moment came was I wasn't really thinking about just updating them. I was trying to think of the end communication. And really, it was like, oh, wow. So what you're looking for is just an update. So if I have no update, you just want me to tell you. I have no update for you. Still in the process, but I got nothing for you. And they're like, yes, if you tell me, I'll wait if I want the job. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I need to kind of rethink about this. Like how I communicate is definitely very important, but we need to find tools or ways to keep them updated as far as like a status. So does, and I even asked, does that have to be for me as the recruiter? And they're like, no. I'm like, can I do a bot? Like, could I literally have a bot where they can look at your Um, you know, your profile in my applicant tracking system, if it still shows that you're being considered, but you haven't moved to any new step, that they could just then say, you're still in the process, but no update, would that make you happy? They're like, oh my God, that would be amazing. 
and I, and I'm like, oh, okay. Like again, it was just like this. It, I my brain is a recruiter brain. I look at it in a recruiter mindset whenever I'm doing this. Um, so you know, design thinking makes you push out of that and look at the candidate side. And and so that was kind of my oh well, this is a 180. Like I'm not looking for these are the steps you want a recruiter to do. I'm looking at recruiters give them a freaking update <laughs> if it's no update we're making a decision tomorrow or we want to schedule an interview with you whatever it is just give them an update and it looks like they want updates either depending on the role um usually within a couple of days or it could be you know within two weeks so there's some there's definitely some wiggle room there too so that you're not having to update them daily but they're just wanting to know if they're still in the consideration. It's kind of like, so I still have, so what you're telling me is I still got a chance, you know, like, um, so that was like one aha moment and I'm still working on it, still trying to figure out. Cause I still think there's um, definitely something that needs to be done with the communication tool for different parts of the process. But then also, you know, what are some ways can, that we can keep that status going? That's going to work well for the candidate as well as the recruiter. That is a, perfect example because you were from a design perspective you, you were committing um you know the crime of trusting your own assumptions or your own fallacies or your own bias a little bit too much mm -hmm. right so that you know in any role you are simply moving forward and acting on your assumptions and your own beliefs and your past experience of the things you know work right so that that's how we as people get stuff done, whether you're a decision maker an individual operator, you're like, here's what I see. I know exactly what this is and I'm going to react to it based on past experience and I'm just going to move, move forward. So you were simply reacting to the problem of communication based on your past experiences of channels. What are the best communication channels? Like, so you were thinking technology and process. You weren't thinking from their perspective, which is, you know, the, those things, yes, that are important, the channels by which information comes, but to the candidate, the thing that the real problem for them was the, the anxiety of not knowing and the potential risk of accepting, you know, because I've applied to work, so you don't apply to just one job. You mm -hmm. oftentimes have multiple interviews and offers occurring concurrently. And shuffling those things or knowing where you stand with one organization versus another, you in the back of your mind, you're like, you know, I need to work. I, I have financial responsibilities I've got to meet. And this, this work, I, I would enjoy it. But my dream job is that one. And yeah. I know it's super competitive. And you know what? I, and then your naysaying comes in and you're probably like, I, I haven't heard anything from them. I'm not good enough to work for them. And you make these decisions to give up on your dream and, and play it more safe. And, you know, you probably could have waited it out a little bit longer had you had the insights to say, hey, you, we think you are a good candidate. We are moving you forward. It's just taking us some time to get you scheduled for an interview or to verify your background, your education, your references. Like, you know that that yeah. status scene is important to them because they're shut. They're they're trying to manage mo potentially multiple offers at once, and this happens. It happens all the time, and it's a good thing that it happens because when opportunity 
presents itself, it's oftentimes multiple opportunities at once. And that's a good thing because now you have a lot of choices, but it's also a bad thing because you have a lot of choices. So your mm-hmm. 180 was, oh my gosh, what does it feel like to be this candidate and not know and potentially go down a road that will make you happy, but there was another road that could have made you happier. So yeah. your solution is kind of helping them navigate that space. Exactly. And, you know, as a recruiter, one thing I always did during my conversations with candidates, I would ask them, are you are you applying other places? Are you interviewing? And if they said yes, I would say, hey, if you get to a point where another opportunity is coming, but you like ours better, give me a call. And um, I was putting it on the candidate the whole time. And I didn't even think about their thoughts and their feelings. <laughs> and Honestly, I don't know if I would call me and say, hey, I got another offer, but I like you better. I mean, it's almost like dating, right? It's not like you have two guys that you're trying to date. You like one better, but the other one's moving a little bit faster. You don't go to the other one and say, hey, I like you better. Would you like to connect a little bit more? You don't do that. Um, so, you know, so I thought I was doing the right thing, but I wasn't, you know, I should be the one updating them. I should be the one having that conversation. It's my job. Um, so yeah, so I think it was definitely a big aha moment and it seems so simple, but you know, but for, you know, when you have a mindset on a certain, on a certain way and you have those assumptions, you have those biases, even those little shifts can be aha moments for you. Yep. Very eye opening, And I think you're story that you had just shared a little bit about dating that's another really important part of design is to design by analogy is to compare what your your problem is or what your goal is to a similar but slightly different scenario in that gives you different context and you talking about that did that and the scenario i always um, saw on YouTube or in our big conferences when I worked in healthcare was what if healthcare was like a restaurant, like those, mm-hmm. uh, uh, those, those, they're very funny videos in which, you know, you, you go in and you want to get seated to have a meal and they can't tell you how long you're going to wait. And then you get the menu and there's no prices on the menu. So it, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways it's, uh, insulting and but also funny because it's really accurate and I think you yeah. your story of this is kind of like dating it's mm-hmm. it's kind of insulting it's kind of funny but it's also really accurate and I think in design when you bring in those analogies it's that in itself is eye-opening too it's an important part of the process yeah, actually, one of my favorite ways to do ideation is the mashup, where you take two completely different things and you mash it together. And in uh, my book, I did interviews and dating because it <laughs> is so sim- similar, but not. Um, and I, I actually saw one case study on IDEO specifically about healthcare and taking kind of the hotel experience of a hotel room and then of a patient room and ensuring that it kind of has that same experience. So one of the 
simplest ideas I remember from that case study was putting, you know, a little refrigerator in there so that their guests, their patient guests can have a soda or a drink or make it easy for them to be able to spend that quality time with their loved one in the room versus having to go somewhere to get something to drink or, you know, just little things like that, Mm -hmm. that you can compare two industries that are different, but kind of have that same, there's something similar about them that you can actually kind of take pieces from and implement into your own, into your own space. Yeah. And that is called blue ocean strategy. And um, a lot, there's a lot of examples of organizations that apply that. Um, And that's what you're trying to do is say, we've got these two perceived independent circles, but really they overlap. So I think one of the classic organizations that have been effective with blue blue ocean strategy is Cirque Soleil. So you have people who love ballet and dance and, um, you know, orchestra and music. And then you, so that's, you know, somewhat conservative and low energy and calming. And then you have the circus, which is risky, daring, and dangerous, right? And those two worlds, they lived separate of each other. And Cirque Soleil brought them together and found that middle ground to where, they can provide both through their experiences and it's very unique. It's a, a, a have you been to a Cirque du Soleil show? I have. So I was going to say they also brought Michael Jackson back to life um, <laughs> through their um, Michael Jackson. So, so I've seen the Michael Jackson and I've seen the Beatles show. And I think that's also something that's so useful to think about too, is that they're taking this group of people who love a specific genre or a specific band who would usually go to a rock band, right? Like a concert for it. And they're showing them this amazing talent within that circus feel. Um, so yeah, I totally can see that within, within that organization. But if you haven't seen the Michael Jackson one, I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but they had, um, Oh, um, what is it called? Like the, um, gosh, why can't I think of it? They like put him on, they did not a 3D, but- um, Like a hologram? Yes, a hologram of Michael Jackson at the end. So you literally felt like you were there with Michael, you know, and it was just so cool to see that experience and be able to kind of see Michael Jackson after he passed away. (laughs) But you got to experience his music and all this beautiful, you know, creative, amazing dancers and artists um, performing. Yeah. So we, we watched love when we went to Vegas and we're here, we are talking about something that isn't uh, tangible just yet with, you know, cause we're in the pandemic and I don't know, I, I want to go to Vegas, but I don't <laughs> know if it's quite safe to go yet. So we've wet people's palate to go see a Cirque show and they just can't do it. So I, I think we owe them something that is more tangible and I will tell them um, Pringles is also a blue ocean strategy in, in some ways. So th- what they did is they took everything people hated about potato chips and did it just slightly different. So, you know, instead of a bag, which results in broken chips and crumbles, Pringles decided to do the opposite of a bag and create a canister, which protects the chips, but it also takes up a lot less space on the shelf. So they can get more skews because there's a lot of Pringle flavors out there and it takes up one third 
of the shelf space that, you know, Lay's does. And I, I like Lay's. The other thing people hate about chips is they're fried and they're greasy and they're not healthy. Yeah, your fingers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're, that's often oftentimes something that turns people off. Well, Pringles are baked. And then the other part is, you know, the size difference. I don't know. I, I was one of five kids. So my brother, who's the biggest and strongest and oldest, he'd get the bag first and he'd eat all the big chips out, right? Well, that's the one thing I hated is I was always get the leftover chips, which were small and they weren't really good for dipping. Pringles, the chip size are homogenous. So, you know, that there's if when you look around and the things you consume and the experiences that you really um, get a lot of value out of, it's likely that it was derived from the design thinking process. Yeah. And I think people don't really understand how old design thinking is and how those concepts have been around. I mean, you think about Pringles. Now, I'm not sure if this is exactly true, and I could be completely making this up, but I'm pretty sure that one of my ex-boyfriend's grandmothers helped invent Pringles. She did at least the soft batch cookies. She worked at PNG. Um, so, um, and so you think about it, like, yeah, that was in high school and, and I, I haven't been in high school for some time now, um, but, but yeah, here's like a great example from, you know, 40, 50 years ago that, that we could be looking at and moving forward with. Yeah. Yep. That It's not new. I think that's the one thing that was surprising about it. And, um, also a lot of people we're resisting it because of its newness and, and it wasn't proven out yet. So they're like, how would this work for us? No one's using it or it's not been around long or it's not been tried uh, or it's not reliable. None of those things are true. It's It's been around for a while and it's doing great things. So you need to organizations or leaders or operators or whatever, you need to get on board before it's too late. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, and I think that's, in some ways, I'm assuming that was one of your motivations to writing the book and also coming onto this podcast was to get people excited and leave them with a call to action to learn more about it and to find ways to use it in your organization, to reach out and partner with consultants that are using it and can help shepherd you and your journey as you try to bring it into your organization. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what, is there any other call to actions that you want to leave the improvement nerd audience with? Obviously buy your book, right? Yeah. Buy the book. (laughs) Please buy the book on Amazon. If, um, if you like, I would appreciate that. Um, but, um, I think a couple of call to actions that I have when I think about my clients or my peers in talent acquisition is one, don't make assumptions. You gotta ask for feedback. You gotta, you know, learn from your audience and you have to do it yourself. So if you haven't applied to your own jobs, if you haven't gone through your own interview process, if you haven't taken the time to truly see the candidate side, to get that empathy going, you're never going to have good candidate experience. So you have to be willing to take the time and to, you know, go through that process, um, go through potentially journey mapping. That's a really cool way to learn about your your candidates and how their thoughts and feelings and actions through each step of the process. Um, And, you know, I'll go ahead and do a shameless plug. 
One of the things I do is hiring blueprint, which is just like a service blueprint where you take that journey map and you build out the processes, the technology and who's doing what. And that really helps you see your whole process as a whole. And it also helps you get buy-in for things that you might need or want to put into that. So technology or getting the buy-in from your marketing team to actually help provide content for you, whatever that is, this is a great way to be able to show it and be able to say, these are where we're having issues. Here's our bottlenecks. And if we get X, Y, and Z, we can improve it. And it's showing that business case, um, which is what your businesses look for when you're trying to ask for more money. So yeah. that's it. I'll that's stop now. <laughs> huge, huge mungus. I am such a believer in mapping. Like it's one, it's one of the foundational improvement tools. And I'm glad you've said like, Hey, that's a call to action is get out there and map. And for me, I'm very visual. And you, when you said that you did what everyone does when they are curious about something, they just Google it. So when you Googled it, you know, to learn more about IDEO and to go on this journey, like that, there's tons of amazing resources out there. So I'd encourage maybe another call to action is to be curious about this, to get out there and do some Googling. And for me, I like to Google and then go to Google images because I love to look at pictures. Oh Mm -hmm. man. So just this, this is going to kind of definitely submit that you and I are nerds because I guess you do this too, is I just, I'll Google customer journey maps and I'll go to Google images and I'll just look at them and they are so, so compelling, the stories that these things tell and with no training whatsoever. Obviously it takes a little bit of training to create these beautiful things, but no training to consume it and interpret it and quickly see, oh my gosh, well, we can make a change here, here, and here. There's so that that I think that was a great call to action is to get people to start mapping their processes from the outside in, from your customers' perspectives in the form of a journey map. Absolutely. And I actually just created my own journey map template. So if anyone wants it, and I also have a, a hiring blueprint template, I'd be more than willing to share that with them. So they don't have to start from scratch because it is, you really have to take that candidate, that customer journey map and flip it to a candidate journey map. So there's different phases, there's different ways to kind of look at what you're doing. Um, so I'd be more than willing. I'm totally someone who loves to give. So if someone wants those templates, just reach out and I will give those to you. Awesome. So let's get your contact information so the Improvement Nerds can find you and take you up on that offer. What are some of the best ways people can get connected with you? Absolutely. So I am on LinkedIn. So you can find me there. It's Jody with an I, Brandstetter, B-R-A-N-D-S-T-E-T-T-E-R. That's 12 letters. And yeah, it's super long. Try to have a five-year-old try to write that for them. Um, and then I'm also, you can shoot me an email at Jody at Let's L-E-T-S sincy dot com, um, and then you know feel free you can i'm on twitter i'm trying twitter i'm learning twitter i've been on twitter for like it feels like 20 years and i'm just now learning it um and i'm jody um underscore recruiter if you want to um, find me there awesome and i'll make sure i put all those things in the show notes so that people can find you i have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and thank you so much for taking out taking time today to, to nerd out with me And I can't wait to see how people respond to this episode.
Yeah, thank you. I've loved it too. It's been so great talking to, to someone that I feel like has a very similar mindset and, and loves two of my favorite things too. Awesome. I've had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you.